0: Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut. I'm an ASC cinematographer, and I wanted to kind of talk to you about something. Getting started in this industry is almost impossible. And my wife Lydia and I, 14 years ago, created a resource called Filmmakers Academy to make it possible. We saw a lot of gatekeeping in this industry and not a lot of sharing knowledge. So we wanted to pull back the curtain Give you confidence, teach you all the necessary skills to be an amazing, successful filmmaker, and package it all on this online resource that you have at your fingertips, on set, on your phone, on your laptop, whatever it is. So, we're going to give you $50. So, if you go into the show notes, click the link, and hit the promo code FAPOD50, you're going to get $50 on your first year of an All Access membership. And I cannot wait for you to join our immense and immersive community at Filmmakers Academy, where we network, we share knowledge, we just bond as this huge filmmaking uh, resource to ignite your creativity and push you beyond your boundaries. I cannot wait to see you in the Academy, and let's get to the podcast. Welcome to episode four of the Inner Circle Podcast. And today, it's all gonna be about transition. That transition period where you're moving from one genre to another, or one specific, uh, specifically with Todd Dos Reese, he is moving from television to shooting his first feature film. And we're gonna go into all that. We're also gonna hear about uh, his life what he's been doing what's he about uh and uh all right todd how are you how are you doing today todd how are you how are you doing today great shane Uh oh, it's wonderful to have you on thank you so much for coming So for all our FA members that might not know who Todd Dos Race is, give us a little cliff notes of what you got cracking.
1: I'm from Massachusetts, New Bedford, Massachusetts. I grew up in a small Cape Verdean community, Um, started studying, looking at photography and uh, looking at um, television studios in my high school. Uh, That led me to USC film school. Uh, which led me to an internship with Russell Carpenter and then camera department up the ladder.
0: Oh, fantastic. Where I am today. Nice. Yeah. I just got back from the Cape uh, and we were going to shoot in New Bedford as well. Uh, We were shooting on the Cape till July 4th happened. And then we were going to move off the Cape when the whole onslaught went down there, but it was So inspiring from a photographic sense, that place. My God, the images I was able to create there was was pretty special. So tell us, growing up in Boston, that whole area, where, like you were talked about inspiration, photography and everything. Tell me a little bit about your upbringing. Uh, Well, New Bedford
1: is an hour south of Boston. We're right on the water. So if you've ever read Moby Dick, it starts out in New Bedford, Massachusetts. Um, but basically, my inspiration came from I was at the movie theater every weekend. Wow. I loved going to the movies by myself or with friends. I was there every weekend. So in the 70s and 80s, I was there watching black exploitation and Bruce Lee films. So literally every weekend, Saturday and Sunday, Seeing some of the great 70s films of of Black Exploitation. I got to see, you know, The Godfather Exorcist when I shouldn't have, you know, because I was too young. I
0: was right long with (laughs) you.
1: Um, but yeah, that that led me to photography and then uh working at the TV studio in my high school. And my professor said, Hey, if you ever think about studying this in college, and he gave me a list of the top five film schools in the country, and USC was one of them, and I latched onto it. Oh, that's fantastic. So what was it like
0: working with uh, Russell Carpenter?
1: Well, I I was with this company called Show Films. I did the internship, and then I became the production assistant. And when they started shooting this film they were doing, it was called Critters 2, I was basically let to do whatever I wanted to do on the set. So I would visit the camera department, the grip department, the electric department, to see where my end was going to be or if it was going to happen or which which department I fell in love with. And Russ's guys... Uh, just let me load magazines. I was like, this is the greatest thing ever. Oh I would take home BL magazines on the weekend and Airy 3 magazines and just practice loading. So I started loading for them, and actually they they needed a loader, and eventually they said, hey, why don't we just pay Todd to become our loader, and I became their loader on that movie, Critters 2. And West, Russ was great. I would literally just sit on the set and look at his lighting and do lighting diagrams, and I think I sent you some lighting yeah. diagrams that I did, but that came from Russ Carpenter. I would just sit on his on his set and watch how he lit, and that's how I think I learned lighting. It was it was oh, a fantastic, awesome. fantastic start. Yeah, yeah,
0: I got to work with him as a dolly grip when I was because uh, I made my work uh, way up more on the grip and electric mm-hmm. side, uh, and he was shooting a a movie that I was, um, you know literally wet behind the ears on the dolly and not, you know, I was, that might've might been my second time at dolly, you know, and Oh my God, it was, but he was so kind and, and helping me through that process, which was, which was wonderful.
1: No, Russ, Russ has been a a supporter of mine since the very beginning. Um, I worked with him all the way from when I started as a loader to a second AC first AC, I worked with him as a camera operator And he was the one, the first one to say, Hey, I think you're, you're ready for the ASC. So he was the one that said, I'm going to write you a letter. I was like, Russ, I don't think I'm ready. He goes, no, I think you're ready. (laughs) That that led me into the ASC.
0: So we're still really good friends. So this episode is all about transition and you have had some amazing transitions in your career. Let's take entourage. For example, you started out as camera operator. And then you transition into director photography. We're gonna go from that transition, camera operating to director photography. And then we're gonna go from the TV transition of, you know, day in and day out, you know, six, eight months working as a TV series. And then you're jumping into your first feature film. So let's talk about the transition from camera operator to DP. Uh, I wanna understand first your thought process. Where, how was it different? What did you have to think about that you didn't necessarily think about? What were the politics that were involved? Let's start there and then we'll just keep on uh, loading it up.
1: You might need another half hour. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So when I got out of film school, I knew I wanted to DP. I wanted to shoot, but I knew the way for me to go because of Russ's introduction was to work as a camera assistant. So, In addition to camera assisting, I was also shooting music videos. So I was doing two two paths. I was shooting and working, getting my union benefits, my union hours and stuff. But um, I was doing both at the same time all the way up, whether I was a loader or second or first, I was always shooting. So by the time I got to Entourage as a camera operator, um, it was the pilot. We were on the pilot and I was the operator and uh, David Frankel was the director. We had a great time. It was, you know, Doug Ellen the creators first first try at it and it was like amazing show, but it was like it was I can never tell with pilots if they're going to hit or not. Right. And so I had no idea if this thing was going to hit and sure enough it hit. So I was operating on the pilot, but when they came to series, Steve Fairberg took over the show and he had Dave Perkle, ASC, uh, who was Doug Ellen's best friend. So he was, he was definitely on the show, and they wanted Steadicam to be on the B camera. So I was out. But luckily, Steve and I had gone, gone way back. So he said, anytime I have a third camera or if there's a second unit, sure. you're, you're, you'll do it. So I was around for the first season uh, after the pilot. And then second season, they figured out, we don't need Steadicam. This is a handheld show. It's all handheld. We're going to do it. 35 millimeter, handheld, no need for Steadicam. So then I I came the B camera operator, great. and Dave Dave Perkel was the A camera operator. So and the B camera operator on Entourage is fantastic because the A camera on Entourage, you're basically telling the story. Like we do a lot of oneers, it's all handheld. You could follow the guys up Sunset Boulevard and do all the coverage in one take, and that's the that's the scene. Right. So B camera was more like it was great for me because I could find things, or I could shoot a. Uh, Inserts or coverage or cutaways that they're going to use somewhere else down the series. So it was like I was DPing, but I wasn't DPing. I was a B camera operator. So I, I still think the B camera operator position is like one of the best jobs on the set. Yes. Because sometimes you're not working, but you can find stuff to do. And it's fantastic, especially if you want to DP. Yeah. So for all the filmmakers out there, take that one. Um, so then season three, Dave Perkle moved up to uh, DP the show and I moved to a camera and then I was a camera um, from season three to season six, but I got to shoot two episodes of Entourage. Uh, I'm sorry. One one episode of of, uh, of Entourage season five because I was begging them. The politics of that show were insane. So it took me three years to say, Hey, Doug Ellen, I want to shoot. I want to shoot. I want to shoot an episode. So he finally let me do that. And then season six, I said, hey, I still, I want to move up. I want to move up now. And it was like, there were so many people wanting those jobs because it was a hit show by then. Massive, massive HBO show. Um, but I had to still fight my way in. Sure. So by season six, I got two episodes. And then I was like, okay, well, Doug, this is it. <laughs> I can't do this anymore. Either I'm DPing or I have to move on. And he let me move move up to uh, full-time alternating DP on season seven. And I finished season seven and eight as a DP. And I actually got to
0: shoot the series finale, which was great. Season nice. eight. to circle back on the B camera operator position for <laughs> one minute. If I'm looking for a B camera op, I'm looking for somebody that if I'm using one camera and it seems like that, that person needs to be on set, just looking for something, you know, it's like, I know a lot of times we focus on that a camera shot, making sure we're getting that thing, but I'm always open to say, okay, I'll light it a little differently. If the B camera is going to get us a shot and get us in the zone and get the actors in the zone and, you know, help with that coverage and everything. So it's like that B camera, you're absolutely right. It's, it's, absolutely essential. It's a beautiful uh, splinter unit kind of thing that kicks off, that you get your DP skills and and kind of show what you're made of. And and uh, it's a great way to say, hey, look at what I did here. The other thing is from a B camera operator, what a DP really wants is somebody that's always engaged. So I just go back and sit on the truck when they're not working, is always looking for that shot and opening up to say, hey, I'll go shoot birds out there if we need some wildlife stuff. Always sitting there wanting to grab something. So that's that's uh, just something I wanted to circle back on because that slot tends to be kicked to the side a lot for a camera, but the B camera slot for me is is gold so many times.
1: Absolutely. And even going back to your how you started the 35 millimeter DSL thing, I have an A7S3. And if I'm in a tight space and there's no way a B camera is getting in there, I'll send them out to do time-lapse or inserts. Exactly. It's like, go do something. It's like, it's the best, best job on the set.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> All right. So you're transitioning. You You obviously were doing a couple episodes here, but when you jumped into the director of photography from camera operator, how was that different? How was, what was... Kind of the the flow and now the conversation with the showrunner with the director. How did that all work? Well, that what that was new to me because I mean, even
1: though I had been shooting music videos as a DP, to go into meetings and uh, tech scouts with the director and working with the director, you know, for a whole week as opposed to like on a music video, you get them for maybe a day or two. Oh yeah. So sometimes you never <laughs> scout the location. Just go. We're going to shoot there. Yeah. <laughs> so. So yeah, it was, it was different because I was like, wow, I have a lot of time. So it was, it was eye-opening in that I, I had all this time to work with a director, which is great because- Actually prep. Actually prep. Because I went to film school and they taught the Artur theory that this is the one voice of the film or the project. And television is not like that. Right. Television is, you have the showrunner, then you have this director that comes for the week- Exactly, And then there's another director that comes for the next week. So it's like whose voice in television is whose voice are you listening to? I mean, you always have to listen to the showrunner, but for that episode, you have to work with the director. Yeah. So that that was shocking to me. So it was like to under, really understand television, it was a good uh, place to be because I saw it for eight seasons.
0: Oh, that's so I, great.
1: I was there for it. So I kind of grew up
0: on that show. Nice. Yeah, so you could – because the politics of like – Because there's a lot of times where the director will do the first and second episode and then the last episode so they can, you know, bookend it. Uh, I work with this one director, uh, Maurice Maribel. I don't know if you've ever uh, worked with him. He does a lot of TV. And uh, he'll do the first or second and then the 10th or the 15th or whatever is the last one. And he always says doing it that way because he's also producer on the show. Uh, and that's where I find like a lot of the director slash producers is something that's becoming much more prevalent now as well as the showrunner. and there it's so it's like now you're having three and four voices plus the other directors on the show, right? So navigating those waters has to be somewhat different. I'm trying to think about, when I did Into the Badlands, I just had two directors. So I had David Dopkin and then I had uh oh God, Guy Furman. So I had those only two directors to deal with. Um, and I shot all six episodes on that first launch, but I I'm remembering like listening to David Dopkin about you need to keep the vision, you need to keep the scope, you need to you know listening to that chirp in my ear. And then I'm listening to guy saying, we're going to do this much simpler. We're going to, you know, get back on budget, crank it out. And then I'm listening to the showrunner that's saying we need big, we need, you know, so it's like, it's so what a, what a uh, kind of hornet's nest to some extent. How did you navigate that? Well, going back to going back to the pilot
1: of, of entourage, uh, Doug Ellen and Steve Levinson were new. So, they had never done a show. This was their first show, you know? So, I don't think they knew how to, uh, how much power they had at the beginning. Right. And they had so much input because, like, as soon as we started airing, it was a hit. Yes. And so, HBO had a lot of input. Like, there were so many voices at HBO that Doug and Steven Levinson had to listen to. So, it was that. But luckily, we had a great, uh, uh, pilot director david frankel who did devil wears prada and i actually did the pilot of this new show called the irrational with him in vancouver but david's a great director so luckily they had him and they had him as a producer on for the first nice. season so they had that voice great um but by the time i started shooting it was a free-for-all it was like we had every you know everybody wanted to direct it you know hbo was still had all their hands in the every decision what cameos are we going to have this week where are we going on location you know so it was a it was a big political uh craziness on that show
0: okay so now you've transitioned from camera operator to dp and you're in the world of television now you did also uh a lot of tv series uh i saw you did seal team how was that different than entourage was Uh, that all the same i mean
1: seal team i just did i came in to do. Well, let, let me go back. So SEAL Team came because of my good friend, Jimmy Murrow. Oh, yeah. So Jimmy Murrow, the best Steadicam operator ever, I, I have to say. Concur. If anybody wants to argue with me, you can. But Jimmy Murrow and I met on Titanic when I was a camera assistant with Russ Carpenter. He was right. the A-camera operator. And we met on Titanic. Even though I was a day player, he remembered me. And when he started doing Southland, he wanted to bring me on as an operator. And then he let me get an episode of of Southland. So that led me to SEAL Team. So Jimmy was, he always started a show as the DP, but they also give him episodes to direct. So I came on to direct his episodes of SEAL Team.
0: How was the transition going from like entourage, uh, kind of a handheld, how was SEAL Team? Was that very much the same kind of handheld grittiness kind of feel?
1: Yeah, because if you ever meet Jimmy Murrow, he's more camera's always moving like he he knows where it goes he has this feel to him because i think that's where he started in steady Cam. that's how he, yeah. he moves his camera so seal team is mostly handheld yeah um but if you go to another show like um i did a show called crazy ex-girlfriend which was um an hour-long episode where we did uh two to four music videos within that hour and that carries the story, those music videos carry the story to the end. So, and that was a lot of, you know, normal stuff like studio mode and dollies and cranes. But it was like we shot four, three or four music videos within within the frame of the episode. So that was, you know, it it's not a big change for me. It's, it's still, as a DP, it's still lighting and putting the camera where it needs to be and discovering things, so...
0: Now going back to your uh, music video days, when was that? When would did oh. you start uh, the whole music videos? Uh,
1: the late eighties, okay, to probably two thousand. I mean, yeah. I don't remember when it started. Yeah, it was kind of the
0: same <laughs> same time period. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, and I and I bet you I couldn't name more than 5 of the artists that I shot. I was I was once known in my in my uh, field as the king of the $80,000 music video. It was like, you know, one or two days max of a music video that we did and we made the most of it. But yeah. it was great. It was a great learning field. You know, you got to do all the tricks, try things and fail and get up and try it again and do something different. Oh, no,
0: that's that <laughs> was so uh eye-opening for me because I was working with several directors that just wanted to push the envelope and they didn't care if you failed. Uh, and that's what was very empowering because you could really just toss it out there and really, you know, get, um, oh my God. I, I remember shooting magnetic film stock that I had figured out that I could actually shoot on mag stock Uh, I did some tests at PhotoChem. We, I found out that it was an 80, uh, ASA and it was 10 times the silver of black and white. So the black and white was extraordinary. So I was all into shooting this music video. I think it was, um, did did it come out like infrared? No, no. Beautiful black and white. Okay. Uh, but so I shot the tests And I showed the director. And he's like, I've never seen black and white like this. (laughs) So then we get on set and uh, we have a lot of exteriors. And he goes, oh, let's use the red filter so we can bring out the sky and all that stuff. Guess what the safe light on the film was? Red. (laughs) 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 So we shot this whole music video. And I'm so excited. I call... Uh, Van Horn you know at PhotoCam and I'm like hey you know how Is this you know f- uh, s- Footage you know it's like, I, I'm so excited You know they were all into it and they're like I got 20 Thousand feet of black And I was like <laughs> Oh man uh, Ugh. What Ugh. I did shoot with the Red filter he goes oh I should have told <laughs> you the red filter That the the safe light on that film Was red But these are the kind of things that happen, you know, in the music video industry where you can just try that kind of stuff. And it was a complete failure and we brought her back and we did it all over again. And I really loved that time period of experimenting, not worrying about failing. And then sometimes what you thought was a complete failure was absolute genius. And then you take it with you for the right. rest of your career. How many
1: how many of those things are still in your toolkit today?
0: No, I know. It's exactly. amazing. I was telling somebody is like, I go, you know, one of the things that I loved about uh, music videos is you could create all these different environments. And I did this one where I would fire 7K xenons through beadboard. <laughs> and somebody goes, you mean bouncing? And I go, no, no, no. I'm driving it through the foam. And they're like, what? (laughs) Right? But that light was powerful enough to be able to go through that foam. And the quality of the light was something that I've been chasing ever since, you know? And I'm trying to always emulate that. That quality of light, you know. So it's like, yeah, it's these holdovers that you just oh. continue that shape your career as an artist. Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna test that one. <laughs> I'm
1: gonna <laughs> test that one because I, I mean, xenons. Russ showed me a xenon. I don't know Pet Cemetery Two. Oh no, Lawnmower Man. Russ did Lawnmower Man, and he started using these xenons. And yeah, I feel nobody uses them anymore. Oh, I use them. I use them all the time. I love. I still them. use them. Yes. Oh, absolutely.
0: Yeah, it's my crazy when you bring those out, when I'm like teaching young students, they're like, what the hell is uh, that? That's the first it's thing like, I do. <laughs> it's the... like,
1: where can we get a Xenon? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wherever I'm on location, where can we get a Xenon?
0: <laughs> that's awesome. Okay. So we talked about your transition from camera operator mm-hmm. DP. Now we're going to move on to your first feature. Mm-hmm. Now, when I made the jump from music videos to the Rat Pack, that was a huge learning curve for me. I had been going like, you know, kind of telling stories, but not with music videos. It's much more of a liquid environment, right? Never thought about continuity, you know, cause you never really have to think about it. Uh, you all of a sudden, you know, equipment lists and all that stuff were things that you did just for music videos and commercials and stuff. But the whole like, moving from television where you're on a very hectic schedule, you have to move very fast. uh, And now you go into the feature realm and now it's not so much. I mean, maybe it was the same, you know, page count that you had because your budget wasn't the the biggest on the blackening was a 5 million or something like that. Right. What did you do in prep that was different than you've done in TV? Mm Mm-hmm. What did you do? uh, Like, did you do any testing? What what was the different experience for you? How did that transition go? And what um, pointers and like golden nuggets can you give to our members that are looking to transition? And I'd love insight on that.
1: I need to write down all those questions that you asked so I can answer them
0: all. (laughs) Let's start with the first one. We'll go with the first one, which is what was the prep process and how was it different?
1: Um, I think television prepared me for uh, this film. Like I said, I went to USC film school, so I studied how to make a a feature film. Um, And television, it goes by so much faster. Like you have so few days to do it in. And I think the, the hectic television schedule helped me with this movie because I mean, we had 20 days to shoot and usually I'll have, you know, what, eight days of prep and eight days of shoot on a television series. So that's one, that's 16 days, but that's prepping and shooting. Right. So luckily we had enough prep time for the blackening. Um, so that didn't, that, that didn't bother me at all. How many
0: weeks did you have?
1: Uh, I think it was three weeks. Okay. Three weeks of prep and I had a great director Tim Story. Okay. Um and he's a master at comedy. So I had no problem handling that cuz I actually I just let him have that and I basically handled the drama or the horror lighting. I wasn't going to do anything comedy-wise. I was like, "Tim, you handle the comedy. I'm going to do the drama on the lighting. There's not going to be any comedy lighting in this. Like I don't want I want to have people like squinting to see stuff. Like I'm not going to make it like, Oh, it's super bright. It's supposed to be funny. No, I'm not. I'm not doing that. So luckily we worked together. Well, we had done right. a few pilots together, so we knew each other and we knew each other from USC as well. Um, so that was a uh, easy transition. Um, yeah. And I just, I just think that because it was Tim and it was his voice and he has a strong voice, it's, it makes it a lot easier than television because if in television, when I'm working with a director, I know there are certain things I'm going to have to ask the showrunner about, like, "Hey, this director wants to do this. Are you okay with that?" Uh, you know, with Tim, it's like he's the voice. I don't have to ask anybody else. That's it. Exactly. And with with television, you have a lot of voices.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I felt the same thing. It's like when you're on that feature, it's uh, it's. I mean, I've had the executive producers and everything get their uh, you know, hands and fingers in the whole mix as well. Uh, especially if it's a new director that's maybe done one or two films, they're always kind of corralling them and and putting the quote unquote baby bumpers on uh the thing. But the one voice is is uh pretty powerful and substantial where you're you're going to a source instead of having to go to three and four different people. Right. But um, they're,
1: they're going back there. They're, I was just doing the show in uh, Vancouver called The Irrational that David Frankel did the pilot. And then the sixth episode, I had Ernest Dickerson as the director. So with those strong voices, I was lucky I had those, but I also had the showrunner to go back to, but the showrunners usually went whatever David Frankel says or whatever Ernest Dickerson says, because yeah. those guys have been around the block.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay. So, uh, you had 20 days, $5 million. How did you allocate your resources from a lighting, grip, and camera to be able to pull off your vision? Because $5 million is not a lot. I did babysitter for $3.5 million, and that was 20 days as well. Mm-hmm. And it's... You know, you can see where the savings come because you're in one location and a couple different car shots and whatever to get there. But once you're at that house, which was very much like the babysitter house, Mm -hmm. uh, once you were there, we did everything there. We only left Warner Ranch twice. Uh, Everything else was done at that location, uh, which obviously saves time for pre-lighting. Once you've lit a space, you're able to go back and revisit that. Were you able to enable that kind of stuff uh, to help you in that process?
1: I mean, absolutely. And even going further back, I used basically my my relationships that I had built over the years with auto Nemitz and with gripping electric houses to get what I needed. But it was basically making deals all over, you know, yeah. begging people, hey, you know, it's my first feature. Can you help me out? kind of thing. But when we got to the 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 house or the that because all everything was on location yeah we had everything was real no 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 studio no no stages um we were at that house and there were times where we had to like there were days where we started start with it tented then take it off and then put it back on so it was like allocating crew for those days
0: um yeah because your crew size couldn't have been that big no, no. What is it like? Could, Key in le- five, maybe? Oh, you're you're way too high. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're way
1: too high. I think there was maybe one day where I had five Grippo Electric, like right. the, the night exterior at the lake where I had to um, black out Dodger Stadium because the Dodgers were playing in the playoffs. And there's a lake in the middle of the city Yeah, that I didn't know about. Yeah, that, I've been there. You've been there, yeah. Oh, so I, when I first, it's scouted, crazy it's, that it even exists. I was there. like, "How did this get here?" And no one knows about it. And like, it was amazing. It's this lake overlooks the whole city 360, and unfortunately, we were shooting the night that the Dodgers were in the playoffs, so we had a blackout oh part God. of that circle around the lake. So because they were supposed to be in the middle of nowhere in yeah. the woods. Um, but that night I maybe had five electricians because I had one condor with yeah. a 9k and a an S360 on the thing, and we had to light the lake and light the woods, you know. Um, and also getting creative, my gaffer, um, Mike Withers got creative and we used, you know, the stick ball you guys you that they have at p- the parking lots, like crew parking at night. It's just a globe on a generator. Yeah. We use that. We use some of those because those are super cheap. We got them to be, you know, moonlight and we put them like deep in the woods. So you just see this glow, but I didn't have to, you know, spend it. Now, in movie so lights.
0: Did you uh, bypass it and wire it so you don't have to deal with the sound? Because no, I, mean,
1: I Mike, somehow did it, but we, yeah. didn't, we didn't have the generator right there. We yeah, wired exactly. it so it was somewhere yeah. else.
0: But yeah, I've used those things. Uh, you know, I call them whacker lights or yeah. uh, Caltrans. Exactly. You know. They used to just have those metal halides or sodium vapors, and now they have those big balloon kind of things that are awesome. And yeah, see, that's I want to talk about that a little bit because this is something that uh, a lot of people think that, you know, okay, we're ASC members, we're always getting like the big stuff and all that, and we don't have... I DIY 70% of still on whatever a uh, massive budget or no budget. It's like, I love the scrappy nature of that. And I love what you're talking about. It's like, I don't have the money to to light that depth. Let me just put one of these things that goes 25 feet in the air, crank the damn thing on, turn it on. And that's going to give me depth in the woods. This scrappy nature I think you never want to lose as a director of photography. And I, I, it infuses me and in how I do everything. Like somebody's like, like the whole, um, one thing that I, I recently started doing is with the tubes. They're great and all, but they're not really good on the face. So I found super noodles that are huge water noodles and I slip them inside that it fires through, you know, two and a half inches of foam. (laughs) And now you can put that thing right there. It doesn't fly all over the place. And it's the perfect light in the eyes. It's like, that's a super noodle from some what you know pool supply joint, but that's kind of how I've always been as a cinematographer. I liked. I'm very tactile. I grew up on a farm. I love to try all these different stuff. Uh, so tell me about some of your other kind of scrappy nature that you had to do on on that show, yeah. on that movie.
1: Yeah. So we're in the in the cabin or the house. It was a ho- actually a house in Brentwood. Um, <laughs> That's so good because it does look like you're in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, it was it was an amazing little house in Brentwood, and I I kind of liked that we were in Brentwood and we had a curfew, because I always think like you think a horror film you're gonna do like two weeks of nights. Yeah, and you don't get the best out of the crew working all night. And luckily we had a twelve a midnight curfew, so we had to like sometimes like I said tent the house and untent it and yeah. retent it. So that was great, and the crew was fresh every day. You know, work till 11 o'clock, 11.30, and then taillights by 12. So we shot at this this house. And when you have so little money, um, and I learned this, I don't know, going back to my old music video days, like what the location has. Use what the location has. This location had track lighting. So basically, I'm like, OK, I'm going to use the track lighting and augment it with a So we would put a near track, you know, the M- MR-16s yeah. up in the track lighting and then when i wanted to change the color i just you know go full blue on it or half blue and change the whole mood of the whole room and it worked fine you can i mean you it looks like a different room from day to night and like certain times but yeah you have to use what's there and that's what you have to i did on both both of the main rooms i said what do they have here give me give me a top light here and uh, change the bulbs change the color or something you just have to use what's there cuz you can't afford it you don't no, have you know you, you don't have the you money you got to
0: get scrappy you got to get ingenious with that kind of stuff and use what the location i i always talk about you can find locations that light themselves you know even in day exteriors you're like looking at a place and like okay i got a lot of trees over here that's my negative fill i got open sky over here it's going to start to light itself you're also looking at that when you're picking your locations as a house like that Mm -hmm. thinking about okay What does it have? What can I utilize? And what can I take from my cinema tools? Like you said, take the mr 16 track light that they're in many homes and just use some gel Mm -hmm. and use some, maybe even uh, you can, you know, use like even little honeycomb discs to stick in there so it goes exactly Mm -hmm. where you want it. It doesn't fly all over, but it's it's, uh, more that uh, kind of, DIY style that uh, you got to pull out when you, when you're doing these kind of, you know, lower budget things personally inspires the shit out of me to do those type of movies. Mm-hmm. Like when I did uh, act of valor, that was six and a half million dollars. And we shot over two years. Wow. I was the key grip, the gaffer, the electrician, the grip the camera operator, the DP, and the travel coordinator. We only had 10 people on that movie. Uh, so I also, I booked all our flights and booked all our hotel rooms. And that's <laughs> that's kind of how we flew all over the place. But that's the, you know, it's, there was something that was so visceral about making that movie. And then when I went to Babysitter at, t- at three and a half million, there was that same grittiness and just trying to make it work and and that's where I think our brilliance comes out uh, when we're, you know, kind of have to think on our feet. Curveballs are thrown at us. How do you react? Uh, and what do you have in your, you know, toolbox and your your quiver of brushes and everything that you can then, you know, take yeah. out and 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 paint with.
1: Because you have your toolbox, and then you get the bigger toys, and you go, oh, I know what to do with those. Cause I've been using my toolbox of homemade lights and China balls and paper lanterns that I, you know, you give me a 5k, am I know what to do with it. So
0: exactly. Yeah. Okay. So let's dive into what was um, the transition that you had gone from television. So obviously it was much faster pace, which worked to your advantage on this because you had a very short schedule. So you had to move quick. How was any difference in the day of, uh, like, on the feature project compared to the television? Working with the director, like, uh, I, there's some directors that do blocking schematics. There's some directors that just want to show up and rehearse the scene with the actors, see where they go, and then we react to it. How was his process, and how did you gel with that?
1: Um, luckily, Tim and I both love prep. Great. And we love researching films like going back and looking at The Exorcist, because we were, you know, doing this horror comedy, but not that Exorcist is a comedy, but we wanted to look at classic horror films and go from there. But we we studied horror horror and we spent a lot of time in prep. And that's that's I think that's the trick for me. Even in even in television, yeah, prep is my key. Like I spend every prep. I do everything. I do everything I have to do in prep, so that when I get out there and something goes wrong, I know what I have to do to fix it. Yeah. And luckily, Tim is Tim is the same way. So we would, you know, work out every scene. We'd go through every scene and prep. Like, here's what we're gonna do for this. Here's what we do do for this. Um, and then when we see the, the house, it was like, okay, so maybe that's not gonna work what we talked about in prep. Maybe we'll do something else. But prep is the key to everything we did. I mean, we had such a short you know, shooting schedule that we had to know right away. And Tim is fantastic at choreographing where he is, you know, he, and he, we had such dynamic characters that everybody wanted to have their input. Oh, absolutely. But Tim was like, Nope, here's how we're going to do it. And they fell into place and it was great. Oh, that's so, great. so I think prep is the, the, was the key to helping us make great. a successful film.
0: Knowing where they're going to move. And then you could By it's so funny because, you know, when you start, out in this business, at least w- this was a huge learning curve for me. It's like the block light shoot, you know, is such a wonderful thing, but we find that we don't get that much anymore, <laughs> right? So because of that, you have to really go down the road of kind of pre-planning that blocking. So you can then educate your pre-rig team and what they're rigging and where they're putting the lights and all that. So when I came to the wrap Pack, I knew nothing about blocking because I really didn't know much about it. So, but at least the director, Rob Cohen, was all about rehearse, block, light, shoot. So I started to get that. But then the more I started shooting features I drifted more out of me doing the lighting schematics and everything and started to do more of the blocking schematics with the director so I knew where they were going to move. And then once you see that in a top-down scenario, you can start to see where the light needs to come from. Mm -hmm. And that was a big aha moment that I had just as I started to do feature after feature and kind of honing my prep process is where when you can see it as a top down and you can see where you put your little figures and the camera wants to be over here. Well, you're certainly not going to light it from here. You're going to light it from there, right? So you can have your downside to camera best case scenarios. That doesn't always work out, but at least you start there. Oh, there's funny thing. I want to circle back to when you said about the, um, the uh, curfew. I had one director that I worked with, a comedy director, John Whitesell, said, nothing is funny after 1 a.m. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and he's so true. Yeah, man. The crew starts to go down. They like, do. like, two a, two it's like The actors don't have their snap either. Yeah, it doesn't make, doesn't make any sense. Um, but going <laughs> back to the, the blocking, um, we had so many characters and scenes that. I knew Tim wouldn't have an idea of, or he'd have an idea of how he wanted it, but that didn't guarantee that the actors were going to do it that way, or something would change. So, a lot of the scenes of my lighting diagrams and my uh, blocking schematics um, were just general. So, but I I sent you some that showed, like going down into the basement. I knew they had to go to the basement and discover certain things. So I knew where I would put lights and where I wanted lights. So that helps me. I mean, going back to the Russ Carpenter lighting diagrams, I'm still carrying that along. No, it's
0: so important. People don't realize how, um, like I always tell my team, if I'm able to give you blocking schematics and lighting schematics from a camera grip and lighting standpoint for the whole movie, that's like giving you a map from L.A. to New York. If I only do a third of it, it's like you get to the Rockies and you're like, where the hell do I go? It builds confidence within the crew. They know what's going on. They know what is going to be required. They can see, oh, this is going to be a simple scene. I don't have to empty the truck. And once that first week goes on and they actually see that you're holding to what you've planned, then they really, I find that they really are invested in the process. And that's all true from just us doing the work i'm going home and still building schematics i'm still working the weekends i'm doing everything to prep to prepare my team for the utmost success absolutely
1: that's what i'm that's what i'm doing on the weekend i mean i don't know how other dps work but if i didn't i don't know how i would work without these leg diagrams no i know i mean i i take i on the weekends that's all i'm doing is like they're like, "Hey, you want to come here?" I'm like, "I got to do my lighting diagrams." <laughs> they're like, "What? Come on, it's Saturday night." I'm like, "I have to finish. I have to finish before Monday. We start shooting Monday." So, like, I don't know how other DPs work. And my my Canadian, both of my Canadian crews, they they love my diagrams. Oh, they say they love my diagrams. They're like, "We don't ever work with DPs that have these." I'm no, like, I know. How do you how do you we you just start off on day 1 and say, "Put a 18k over there?"
0: No. Oh, it's <laughs> it's unbelievable. Todd. I mean, I have, when I bring my little Bible of stuff, I mean, it used to be in this big ass book. Now, now it's all PDFs, you know, all, uh, you know, via iCloud sharing it all. But yeah, I mean, it's been something that I've tried to do my whole, once I started to see that communication and communicating the vision is the most difficult thing we do. Mm -hmm. How can we help that process as a director of photography how can we engage our teams in a way that they feel super successful and and it's not like we have to plan it all out for them because we want their input we want their creativity we want their advice they've been there they you know i i love asking you know my gaffer you know so what do you think we should do here and you know but having a plan that shows where they're gonna be, where they're moving, all the different angles that we're gonna do. The AD can then take that, prioritize it. She sees the sh- He or she sees the shot list. Okay, this we can do in half a day. It, it starts to educate every member of the filmmaking team to be better and more confident in being able to deliver the days.
1: And I tell my grip, electric, and camera, I give it to all, everybody yes. in all three departments. And I say, if you have a better idea or think of something, please let me know. I don't care who comes up with the idea; I get the credit, so it doesn't matter. Tell me what, <laughs> tell me what you think. I'm always open. I, I do my drawings in pencil, so I can erase and put something else in there. I'm, it's, it's. I, I just love doing it.
0: Nice. Okay, so let's dive into the blackening a little bit. Um, Obviously, it's a comedy horror, which I loved that you did not go into the comedy lighting scenario. I loved that you said you wanted people to squint because I was squinting while I watched it. So uh, success. Tell me about, uh, did you and the director uh, put together a lookbook? You said you watched features. Uh, What were your references? Uh, Let's just dive into that for a little bit.
1: Yeah, during prep, we, we, you know, like I said, looked at a lot of horror films. Um, we did put a, together a lookbook that we shared with production designer, art director, ADs, everybody, so they can see what we were trying to do. Um, but yeah, that's that was our basis. I mean, that was three weeks. I mean, I don't f- think I finished that lookbook till the day before we started shooting. So it was like right up to the last minute. We were always like, hey, what about this? Let's look at, have this look for this location. Um, we were
0: always at it. So you formulated the lookbook, you've done that. So when you went into the house interior, because it was very dark in there and um, and the way you were able to bring out every member out of that darkness. So I felt what I loved about it is you didn't know the geography. You didn't know where the basement necessarily was or the game room was you didn't know where all these things were so people those you know leather face mass dudes could come out of anywhere was that part of the thought process with it because it definitely made me feel that way that i i it was it was so dark that i didn't know where these people were going to come from
1: no i think it just happened out of necessity because I think the basement location we didn't find till we were ha- we were halfway through the uh, shooting of the big house, the okay. Brentwood house. like we were constantly looking for this basement. we couldn't find it and finally something this basement appeared. So I think that just is the genius of Tim's story where no, they have to run this way to get to the basement and they have to go that way to get to the game room and that way's outside and this is where the laundry room is. Like, I, I don't know if you were... I was never confused the first time I saw it. I was like, okay, I know where he's going. No,
0: no, exactly. But then when you got into it with the characters and everything, you lose the geography, which was, I think, part of your mission. When you started with them, you didn't necessarily know where everything was.
1: Yeah, no, literally, it was like finding locations. Like, okay, literally, we built a hallway so that it would connect everything. Like, that hallway was... Not in, not in the Brentwood house. It was at the basement house, but not connected to the basement. Right. It, we literally just built it and said, okay, this way they're going to go to the game room and that way is the basement. And that, right. It was
0: just by necessity. We just had to do it. Gotcha. Okay. And then with that, um, kind of talk about what lighting units were you using in there? Uh, I did see a bit of top light. Uh you know, so your camera can move a little bit, but kind of talk about, uh, you know, the lighting that you did. Like, let's take the game room, for example. Mm-hmm. What was your uh, lighting in there? So the basis was basically the track lighting.
1: It had a, a rectangle-shaped room. Okay. And the, the track lighting was rectangle-shaped. So I basically continued that, and I spotlit a few things on the wall so I'd have background. Okay. And there were certain things I needed Faces to be lit, then I would put a, a stero, not not through a noodle like you would do, but through like a grid that had yeah. some, some. No, absolutely. Uh, so we we had that, and but I mean it's basically small little units because you saw the whole room everywhere. You no, saw I every, know you saw everywhere, and there was no there were there the was ceilings
0: one, were very low in there as well, weren't they?
1: No, they were they were pretty high. We had a few windows, but I wasn't lighting through that. The only okay. time you saw you saw some green light. But that was just supposed to be for the outside. Yeah, yeah,
0: like metal halide yeah. or something out there, yeah. Super
1: super bad, super bad metal halide. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> super, super green halide. Um, but yeah, it was just basically taking the track, the mr 16s and facing them or pointing them where I needed them to, them to be. And then depending on who whose shot it was, character-wise, I would you know bring in a, a Stara or a little, um, what did I have? Uh, light mats. I had light mats. So it was all very small, small units.
0: Right now, when you're going in to do like the uh, close ups of the females, what did you use? Did you use anything differently? Do you have your own little, uh, you know, uh, beauty (laughs) light that you bring in? Um, Is there anything that uh, is in your little uh, bag of tricks? Um, Luckily, I had a beautiful cast. You did. So I didn't really
1: have to do much with them. Um, I just do it by, eye. I don't really have a th- certain thing where I go, let me have a soft frost in front of a light mat or soft frost in front of, Im- in front of an image 80. I just, I test, I do, we, did, we didn't have to, did we do test? We didn't do any test on this cause we didn't have time. Um, I just like the way they, they were easy to light because they were so, you know, beautiful actors yeah. and every skin tone possible. So there was no, there was no formula. It okay. was just like. What what was quicker because we had so many pages to do yeah. in that game room and so many pages in the living room. Yeah. Um. Luckily, the in the in the basement, I got to do some more um crazy stuff. But that was just it didn't have to be beauty. It just it was like this is the end of the movie, stuff's going down, lights coming from everywhere, make it as scary as possible.
0: Right. Now, in your uh, with the five million dollar budget that you had, what was your biggest light that you were splaying out there?
1: I think it was the nine k in the condor, with the s three sixty for the lake. You know, at the the night exterior lake, I think nine k was our biggest light. Yeah, no, no xenons.
0: So you're like esteras track lighting. What else? Are you light mats, you were saying. I mean,
1: I always am a big fan of um, Source 4s. I love those. I things. mean, I could do a whole movie with them. I know. They could, they do everything.
0: We, Lico wise Le- right? Lico
1: Source 4s. And the one. Pars.
0: I yeah. love you. Those are great for like just hot, out of focus shit in the background. I mean, I carry, they, they, my gaffers
1: always get tired of me because if I'm doing a day interior, I was like, make sure you have four Joe Licos or, or Licos so that I can put a sunspot there's always going to be a sunspot like if if I if I'm looking at a someone's show and there's a day interior and there's no sun anywhere like I know it's daytime but there's no it doesn't look real it's like oh they right. shot on a stage yeah so that's always my thing I always have like a source four shaped or 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 um, defined like a really square or a rectangle um, but just in my house the other day I saw the sun was coming in through some clouds And it was like this soft, soft circle near my appliances on the shelf. I was like, oh, I'm going to do that.
0: I'm going to do that. This is something that I think every... I mean, I've talked to several cinematographers, but that's what I do on a daily basis. Just look at light. And then once I see it, I start to try to examine it. Yep. How was it created? Where, where is it? I always go, I see it on the wall. I'll go look at it. Where the hell is that coming from? You know, and then I'll look. Oh yeah, great. Uh, now, how can I create that quality? Because hazy sun is very hard to do. Yep, It's very hard to do. And it's like keeping that, the ratio to of how strong it is compared to, you know, high noon and rifling and you know it's it's that's something that uh, that fragility of light that i'm always chasing as well i yeah. just love that
1: quality. i literally had to go outside and look at the cloud the misty clouds that were in front of the sun <laughs> i was like
0: wow look at that yeah what is that confusion you think that's a <laughs> I know, 250 I like, what, or a what is that hampshire or a half soft frost <laughs> how does it make it so soft
1: it's beautiful <laughs> I took pictures in my, it's in my phone.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, I know. I I do the same thing. I remember I was walking with my son. Uh, We were in last year. uh, I did a movie in New Jersey and he goes, I want to go to the Hamptons. And I'm thinking, oh, well, shit, it's not, it's got to be very close. No, it was a three hour drive. You know, I'm like, what are you talking about? Newark to the Hamptons is three hours. So we get out there and we're walking down the street and I just look and there's this table lamp on this table that is firing straight down, that I'm looking at the quality of light on everyone's faces with white tablecloths. First thing I do is I go and I'm trying to find one that doesn't have a person on it. So I'm not ripping the the light, you know, and they were all wireless. So I finally found a table. I put, took the picture of it. (laughs) Right. So I knew uh, if I wanted to get that, I then uh, put it on the table and I had miles sit in the chair to take the light quality, right. Of what it felt like. I was like, yeah, we're constantly looking at that kind of stuff. It's a sickness. It, <laughs> it is a sickness and, and a curse. Oh my God. All right. So um getting back to um, your uh, lighting style in there. And how do you go about covering those six and seven and eight person scenes because it's one of the most difficult things for cinematographers to do people all in like a half circle or all broken up and, and trying to get the overs and all that stuff and link all that on a 20 day schedule on things where you're obviously having to move. You're probably on a six, seven page, page count a day, right? Uh, how was that process and what did you do to be able to pull it off in your time parameters? Um, luckily Tim
1: works fast. He doesn't need many takes. He knows what's, what's going to work. Um, but it's basically because I'd come from television, I know how fast I have to go and I go, okay, what three shot do we need? What two shot do we need? What single do we need? Okay. So I just basically go in the direction that I'm shooting, I do everything this direction, then that direction, then this, then this, and I just go around the table. And it it just takes time. And if you know where you're going, you know you can follow the lights the same way. So the camera's moving here and I'm keying this way, then I'm just going around, you know, I'm just going around Um, and we just had to do it. It was just like, okay, we have 40 pages in the game room. (laughs) Let's start shooting it.
0: (laughs) Right, and and that's this is something for a lot of our, our members that are starting out and, and having to, because I'll never forget when I was in the Black Tower at HBO when I was this untested cinematographer that was going to shoot his first narrative project. They were like, how do you feel about lighting six and seven people uh, in a room? And I said, well, what's a band, right? Band, same thing, and they're like, Oh yeah. You know, and I go, uh but it is a difficult um process and I think helping our members teaching them how to do it like I love your whole process of I mean, we've all been kind of taught you shoot the master and then you go in this direction go in that direction but there's so many times where people are at Say a table, they get up, they move, that alters the the line. Then you're uh you you don't have to adjust to it. But it's it's kind of nice hearing your process of of how you like to work. And you're taking it in basically blocks and you're saying, Okay, who's the main driving of the scene? Who has the most dialogue? All right, let's group two or three people together so they can feed off of that one person, the banter back and forth. And maybe that banter is across the table or off to two sides, but then you can kind of start to formulate those, uh, you know, your shot list.
1: You yeah. Know. And basically I, I take that master and I put it in my head and go, here's where the master was. Where do you need to chop it up? Where does it need to be cut? Who gets a single, who, who can live with a two shot? and just cut it up that way because I'm um, making a joke of it, but it was about 40 pages in that game room. Wow. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it was, and in the living room was probably another 20. So it was like, no matter how many days we were in there, it was like, wait, we're still shooting that scene? <laughs> <laughs> it was like, yep, and here we go. And th- don't worry, they're going to run in the hallway next. Oh, like, thank God we get to get out of here. You know, So it's it was just one of those days. What but-
0: was the the size of that game room?
1: Um, it was probably 13 by 20. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and the, and the, the living room was, was, was huge. Cause it was like a big, one yeah. big room Yeah. and the kitchen to the basement was separate. And were
0: you shooting two cameras?
1: Uh, mo- not most of the time, but half the time.
0: Half the time. Yeah. All right. So you had like a B camera team for. Oh yeah, ten days.
1: No, we had the B camera the whole time, but okay. it was
0: like not every shot could right. get it. Couldn't get it. But in I then. was
1: I was operating A, and Robert Arnold was operating B, and he okay, also great. did Steadicam.
0: Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. What uh, if there was one scene out of that uh, film that you would want to showcase? What would that be? Um, either the basement
1: where the finale takes place, um, or the lake scene.
0: Let's talk about the lake because okay. I really like that.
1: Um, that lake in the middle of the city that no one knows about except you and I now. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was only one road to get up there. And we had, I think it was like a 60 or 80 foot condor. But there weren't many places to put the condor. So you drove up the road and that was it. You couldn't go anywhere. There wasn't like, oh, let's take it around so we have backlight. It was like, nope, you're going to have side light and that's what you're going to live with because that's where it was. Um, so I basically had a 9K and an S360 up there. Um, I don't even know if I had a guy up there. I don't know how I did it. Um, but basically there was that and I used you know 12, 12 by 20 blacks and 20 by 20 blacks to, to black out Dodger Stadium. Okay, And I put the uh, wacker lights, as you call them, all around the woods that we saw. So that was mainly my my back edge, but it wasn't back. It wasn't edging the actor. No, it was edging the forest.
0: Right. Exactly. So they would separate out of it.
1: And, uh, the actress X who had to swim in that pond, which was not, it's not a swimming Lake. People go there to fish. I don't know if you know that. We had it tested and it was safe for her to swim in, but Good. she was she took it like a champ. She was just like, okay, what do you want me to do? No,
0: she seems like that kind of individual. She was all in.
1: She is something else, boy. <laughs> she she got in and she got out and she doesn't like, want me to go back in. Nope. We're done. But uh and she she swam the whole lake and we we had a uh I think it was a 30 foot techno so that we could skim across sure. with her. There was talk early about getting, you know, underwater camera, but it was like it, we didn't know it wasn't that clean. It, not clean. It wasn't that clear. Right, yeah. That we could have... It would have benefited us and done a shot underwater because everything was above water anyway, so... Um, what did
0: you use to fill? So you had your backlight sources. So you're talking a 9-light? I had a 9K,
1: nine, HMI. Oh,
0: uh, gotcha. So you had a 9K and the uh the 360. And, and 360. So if
1: I was shooting her swimming towards the techno, I had the 9K hit edging her. And I had the S360 backlight, uh, front lighting, the forest gotcha, where the uh, leather face was shooting from. Um, and other than that, it was just the wacker lights behind trees. Gotcha. Glowing the trees. So I never really had a direct light backlighting her because the way we wanted to have her swim, which was the long way of the lake. The only place I could put the condo was side.
0: Exactly. I entered the same situation, uh, on my latest thing that I'm doing, where we were in, we were, our house was on the water and it was, the tide was 22 to 26 feet change. So there would be tons of beach and hardly any water. And then all of a sudden the beach would vaporize. So we were constantly dealing with the ebb and flow of that. But I could only get one direction that I could backlight there everything else had to be a side light. And I had never been pinched that way before, other than probably, maybe on Babysitter, I was pinched that way a little bit, but but maybe on uh, one or two other films where I had to go sidelit. It's not the greatest scenario by any means. Right. Uh, I just love that three quarter backlight and then the beautiful soft ambient moonlight mm-hmm. fill. It just feels so right. And this was hard to get my head around doing it that way because it was basically you were locked by the location. Right. Yeah. And
1: and going back to the bounce, I think I just had, um, it might have been like a, a Jolico into a beadboard to get her face, to get her face real low to the water. Yeah. So, because we were right at the edge. She almost swam to the edge of the lake. So we were just like, you know, right there just
0: to fill her up. Awesome. Good, good. Well, I think that, uh, I had a great conversation with you. Thank you so much, Todd, for being on here. We kind of went through all your transition process with camera operating to DP and then from television series on to, uh, your first feature film. And thank you so much for coming and, uh, being a part of the inner circle podcast.
1: Oh, Shane, this was a blast. Thanks. Thanks all right. A lot. You bet. And I'm going to steal those two, uh, your, your your noodle idea and your xenon through the beadboard. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to send you the sh- shots from it. I was okay, like, good. Here's what it looks like.
0: Thank you. <laughs> You're so welcome. Thank you so much, shot right. Great having you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut. And I'm an ASC cinematographer. And my wife and I have created this incredible resource called the Filmmakers Academy. And we'd love for you to download and rate our app. If you're a filmmaker, do yourself a favor and download the Filmmakers Academy app today. It's available wherever you get your apps. Most notably, the App Store, Google Play, Amazon App Store, and the Roku Channel Store. The app includes everything on the platform for all access members and from content to community and coaching opportunities, everything you need to master your craft. So download the app. And this is the most important part. Be sure to rate it. Rating us really helps us spread the word and enhance our rankings in this dedicated app store. So if you love what we're doing, this is a way to show it together Let's take your career as a filmmaker to the next level.